Welcome to Two Quants and a Financial Planner, where we bridge the worlds of investing and financial planning to help investors achieve their long-term goals. Join Matt Ziegler, Jack Forehand, and me, Justin Carbonell, as we cover a wide range of investing and planning topics that impact all of us and discuss how we can apply them in the real world to achieve the best outcomes in our financial lives. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. Matt Ziegler is Managing Director at Sunpoint Investments. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital or Sunpoint Investments. So we're a few weeks away from the end of the year, and anybody that reads any business publication or turns on CNBC or goes on Yahoo Finance, you know, what's being peddled around and this happens every year, is, you know, uh, 2024 S&P year-end price targets. And these price targets come from the major Wall Street houses, obviously Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan. And then you have, you know, uh, a bunch of independent firms, Ed Yardeni, um, Ed Heyman from ISI. Uh, I don't know if Bernstein Advisors puts out something, he might. Um, and then there's big brokerage houses too, like the Charles Schwab's of the world. And so, you know, these things, they, I think investors are genuinely interested in them. And each one of these forecasts always comes with some type of thesis and narrative. And, you know, these strategists who are very smart people, um, you know, explain, you know, how they get to these numbers and where the market's going to go and what's going to drive the market or maybe what the risks are. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we wanted to just kind of tackle the issue of forecasting. I mean, we're really not here to bash it per se, but it's just an extremely hard thing to do when it comes to forecast forecasting, you know, where the market's going to end any given calendar year. And there's a whole host of reasons for that, which we'll, we'll talk about. But I mean, maybe to start, let's, Jack, I know we were talking like for last year, what were the targets on the S&P 500 that the strategists were putting out there. Yeah. So, well, first of all, we should just talk a little bit about why this is really hard. You know, first of all, think about all the variables that impact the stock market. I mean, there's tons of economic variables. You know, there's valuations, although in the short term, that may not matter. Corporate earnings, inflation. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on. So if I want to predict the stock market, what it's going to do in any given year, the first thing I probably have to do is I probably have to have an opinion on some of those variables, particularly the ones that have the most influenced the stock market. And then once I have an opinion on those variables, I then have to figure out what's priced into the stock market with respect to this. And if, I'm, if my opinion is different than what's priced in, how is that going to impact the market? So if you think about it, there's a lot of steps that have to go in, which is why you're talking about th this is very, very hard to do. And you know, the, like you said, these are some of the smartest people in the world that are doing this. I mean, these guys are making probably like 2 million bucks or something you know, to, to try to, to be market strategists. And the problem they have is not that they're really not really smart. The problem they have is not that there's great, not great analysis behind the numbers. The problem is they're trying to do something that's impossible, which is even getting generally what the market's going to do in a given year, as we're, we probably, you know, we'll talk about what happened this year, as we saw this year, getting generally what's going to happen with the market is very difficult. Getting an exact S&P 500 target, it's, it's, it's impossible. Um, and you're not, the headline you're not seeing right now is rash of firings on Wall Street as every analyst gets the, uh, their price target wrong. And the reason is because they recognize that. Um, and and to, your, to your question, you know, if we look at the target, I'll have to pull them up here, but if we look at the targets for last year, I mean, the bottom one was 3,600. Um, and the top one, which was Goldman Sachs, was 4,600. Um, and I believe we trade around 4,715 right now. So it looks like Goldman was the closest. 
but no one was right. No, no one was all that close. And this is, you know, we've probably got 15 or 20 of these forecasts from Wall Street, you know, that we looked at and, and not one of them was right. And it, that just gets at how difficult this is to do. I got to I got to say this on that point. And it. All media, it makes for a great soundbite. The target number is never the interesting point. Have this conversation with clients a lot when this stuff inevitably comes up every year. The target number doesn't matter. It's the path to how you got to that target number that's really interesting. Because just like what you just laid out, Jack, like you have all the steps and then with all the steps, you have all the layers. So great. These three things need to happen for the S&P to end up here at this multiple with this top line revenue, this bottom line earnings and all these input costs in the middle, cost of capital, rates, Fed, macro, micro, you name it. So makes for a great soundbite to throw out these numbers. They are invariably guaranteed to be wrong. And within them is the actual interesting part of the con conversation. And that's the thing that actually drives allocator decisions because all of us have to sort of reconcile what are our biggest, most confident concerns and what are our smallest, least confident shoulder shrug concerns? One of the things that's important to point out here is a lot of these guys do do bottoms up builds. So, you know, they are starting with company revenue, profit margins, profits of the S&P 500 constituents. And then, you know, that results in a level of earnings for the S&P 500. And then it comes down to, you know, which is, is, is very hard. I mean, to Jack, your point earlier, all the different variables. Well, of course, there's all variables in there. Earnings be up 6%. Are they going to be down 5%? You know, what, what companies in the index influence the uh, index the most? So their earnings count more. Um, what multiple are investors going to assign those earnings? You know, that's kind of the way that these guys are, are trying to arrive at that number. And then taking in other things that, you know, may come into play, like inflation, like rates. Um, and I think this year, you know, where a lot of investors, professional investors got the forecasting thing wrong, if you remember in late 2022, it was all, you know, hard landing, basically. And the more bearish strategists were the ones that were getting all the, the attention, um, predicting a hard landing and, you know, a decline in earnings. And it turned out to be just the opposite. Earnings have come in this year. And, um, you know, even though it was, you know, for most of the year, the market was being driven by a small handful of stocks, you know, a lot of other companies have come in with their, the earnings expectations and the estimates. So it, so it is, you know, there is a methodology behind it. We don't want to talk about the, these guys are just, you know, sort of guessing, but you know, all of that is just a lot of build, a lot of effort, and there's a, a lot of variables and things that can go into influencing that. Yeah, you know, two things with that. One is, you know, to your point about hard landing, you know, there, there were three kind of outcomes we could have had. There was sort of the higher for longer outcome. There was the soft landing outcome in the middle, and there was the hard landing. And, you know, we don't know which outcome we're going to get yet. We, what we know is so far, we've been probably a lot closer to the soft landing than a lot of people would have predicted. A lot of people would have predicted the edge cases as being higher probability and the middle case being lower probability. And so because we're getting that, you're seeing both of those other two scenarios could result, the higher for longer could result in the market going up, um, but both of those scenarios could have resulted in a lower market than what we're seeing. And so that, that's what we got, and it, it was low probability. But to, to the other point you guys made, this is not that these forecasts are garbage. Like there, there's so much interesting stuff there. You know, one of the things I've learned in markets is even if I don't think I can predict something, I can learn a lot from the analysis of trying to predict it. So I can learn a lot about what drives inflation 
by looking at someone trying to put together a forecast for what inflation would be. And so like reading these reports, it can actually be really valuable. You can learn a lot about what goes on in markets. It's just the end conclusion, which is sort of a requirement. You know, you don't blame the guy that's putting out the target. Like that's what these guys got to do. Like you give me 2 million bucks and, you know, go put me, I'll go put a suit on and I'll head to Wall Street and I'll go give you my uh, S&P 500 target. So it's not blaming the people that are doing it. It's just something that is very, very difficult to do. I like knowing that you can be bought for 2 million bucks, Jeff. <laughs> oh, absolutely. hundred percent. If, if any of them are listening, give me a call. I'll give you my forecast next year. I, I think inside of that, so none of these people are idiots. They're all very smart people. So I have to say that the media wants them and the circus is to put on this show of putting these targets up, but unpacking that stuff. And I think one of my favorite exercises that we try to walk through with really with any investment, but especially with these forecasts and to unpack them with clients is, and this is part of what we're doing today, is what is our base case for what could happen? What's our bull case? Let's imagine what has to go right for something really great to happen. And what's our bear case of something really lousy happening? And most good forecasts kind of take those three scenarios into mind and figure out a way to probabilistically weight them and then explain what that path of logic is. And that is super useful as an exercise. And for us as practitioners and allocators, like this is where we're always looking at other people and seeing like, oh, I, don't, I disagree with them, but maybe we can isolate which variables of their analysis we disagree with and why, and then learn something new because the beginning of this, nobody knows what's going to happen next. In, in my, you know, roughly 20 years experience of being sort of in the market and, and, and working with investors and trying to pay attention to things, it, I don't know what you guys think of this. There's really two points I want to make. It does seem like the more optimistic forecasters, and there's a handful that really kind of stick out to me, at least, um, I'm not going to name names, but they tend to be more optimistic in nature. They tend to be more right than the doom and gloomers. Um, that's one point I want to make. And then the other thing, I think it's, you know, you are following someone or really listening to someone or someone on TV is making this super compelling case. And, um, I think the important thing to try to look for in these people that are giving forecasts and trying to predict where things are going is, do they have the ability to sort of change their mind when the facts change? And so, you know, looking for people experts that have the ability to do that, uh, I think is good. And there's some research behind, you know, if you're following people like that, like people that can change based on, you know, new information and, 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 and new data. Those are the types of people that, you know, you want to pay more attention to when you're listening to this kind of stuff. Yeah. To, to your point, if you want to be a perma anything and you, you're looking at something that goes up a lot more than it goes down, probably the perma bull is the better direction to go in just probabilistically. So you're right. I mean, the people that are, if, if I'm going to be always optimistic or always pessimistic, you know, if, if, if I'm fighting something that's going uphill all the time and I'm a perma bear, I, I basically got no shot. Now, the way those people handle that is, you know, the one in however many years that they're right, they just talk about that a lot, um, you know, and they don't worry about all the times they were wrong. But, you know, still, it's, yeah, obviously, if, if you're going to do, you know, if you're going to be a perma something, perma bull is probably the better one to be. So Jack, you are not in the, we're, we're going to go to your uh, forecasting article from last year, which you kind of do this like tongue in cheek because you want to kind of make these forecasts so we can circle back around 12 months later and see how you know poorly you did. But actually you were not in the hard landing camp because you actually predicted that uh, your first prediction was the S&P will be up over, over 15% in 2023. That's why when I look at my analysts, I always look at Jack, $2 million a year for <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> This this will be this will be my job interview here to get the get my forecasting job. 
Um, but yeah, the only reason I do this is because like it's hard for me. Everyone tends to believe you can do this stuff in your own mind, even if you know you can't. And so for me, the best way to know that I can't is to try to every year I write something like this and I've done it for two years now. Um, this will be my third one. And, you know, I like to go look back at it and see how I did. And, you know, unfortunately, I've done probably better than I should have. So I'm probably getting a little overconfident here. But but also like this, this is not exactly an exact forecast here. I mean, the S&P will be up over 15 percent. I'm, I'm using some interesting forecasting tools here. The first one is I'm not being exact like they were. I'm mm-hmm. giving myself a nice range. You know, so I'm just giving myself any anything basically above 15%, I can now declare victory that I was correct. And then the result was not near 15%. It's like 30% or something. So I wasn't all that right. Um, and you'll see, I'll, we'll put that chart back up on the screen here with the the forecast. I put myself in here um, along with the other guys and, and I gave myself credit for 20% uh, as, as my 15%. So that's not what I said, but I'm giving myself credit for it because I wanted to make myself the most accurate forecaster. And that got me above Goldman Sachs uh, with my price target for uh, 2023. So now now I can claim victory. So, so that one, I guess, I mean, I guess it was right, but it, it was not, I mean, I don't know what anybody could have done with that because it was, it was basically half what the market, you know, I was saying above something that was half what the market actually did. Yeah. And I think, well, the chart in there too, was kind of interesting because you kind of looked at in, in, you know, subsequent years after years with losses and gains, what percentage of time the market was up or down. Um, yeah. So this, this is the idea of the outside view versus the inside view. And so, you know, all those other forecasts had a tremendous amount of research that went into them. And I said, all right, I don't have the capacity nor the knowledge to do a tremendous amount of research. So the inside view, what I want to predict the market is I'll look at all the variables that impact the market, inflation, the economy, whatever. And, and I'll use those to build, like you talked about before, Justin, from the bottom up or however you want to do it. I'll build a forecast as to what's going to happen in the market. The outside view is I'll just look what happens historically. So the simplest implementation of the outside view would be the S&P 500 is up, up in 73% of years historically. So guess what? If I got if I got a guess, let's go with up. Um, and then the other thing I, I was t- referring to is when the S and P is down, the odds of it being up the next year actually goes from seventy three to seventy seven percent. And also one of the things I noticed is the biggest up years typically follow down years. And so all I did was just I, I knew nothing about the economy, inflation, valuations, anything. I just said, you know, what are the odds? And you know, so I picked whatever the odds were in my favor with base rates. And obviously I could have been wrong. There was a big percentage on the other side of what I did, but that, that was my idea is like, I, I don't have any, I don't have any skill in predicting the economy. So let's just use the outside view and let's just come up with the best guess I can. I was reading an article the other day and it was talking about how the Fed's use of transitory actually may have been somewhat right on inflation. So they were kind of making the point that, you know, it's just, it was transitory was longer than they thought. Um, and I don't know. It kind of like seemed to like resonate a little bit with me because I'm, you know, as I think about, I mean, obviously rates are way higher and the Fed acted very aggressively. Um, and that has had, you know, some effect, I guess, on inflation expectations. Um, but it really hasn't, if you think about like the economy hasn't really slowed. Um, I guess the housing market maybe to some extent has, but anyways, your number two prediction was inflation would slow, but not to the Fed's target. So you were right on that as well. Yeah, I said something below 3.5% and we ended up getting 3.1%. So uh, yeah, I guess I was, you know, the the thing with transitory is inflation was always going to be transitory. It was a matter of the time frame. Um, And the the mistake the Fed made is if you use a word like transitory with people that are, you know, general as people were generally pretty impatient. So if you use a word about transitory, people are going to say it's coming down soon. And now we don't know, like it's come down now. We don't know if it's going to stay down. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. But 
you know, and again, I had no real great basis for this, but I just felt like, you know, I felt like inflation wasn't going to stay up where it was. And, and I felt like it was going to get down to a lower number. But also, like when you study inflation historically, it typically is very, very tough to get that what they call the last mile, um, getting it down to that 2%. So I kind of said, all right, let's split the difference here. It's not going to be crazy high, but it's also not going back to 2% right away. I kind of feel like transitory was the dad driving the car. And even though it's like, an hour or two hours down the road, like you just keep turning around and yelling at the kids, I'll turn this car around, <laughs> right. even though you're never going to turn the car around and you're just hoping you're going to get to the destination because it's always transitory, but you're just trying to exert some influence. Yeah, I actually just drove my five-year-old on uh, down here to, uh, I'm, I'm in Georgia right here. And so it took us, we had like a nine hour drive consecutively. Um, yeah. And our arrival, I guess, was transitory for a while. Um, you know, and he, and he was not, he was not patient. Uh, um, you know, starting about an hour in, it's like, why are we not there yet? Why are we not there yet? So, uh, maybe, maybe I'm like the fed in that way. <laughs> it's going to be $4 million, a little forehand in a few years. <laughs> Inflation keeps us up. Nah, I'm surprised um, there wasn't some, um, musical reference there with that transitory in the drive and the patience, but I'm sure. Oh, we're going to get there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> wait, wait till we get Matt's forecast. I'm sure there's some music in there. <laughs> yeah. So I won't, uh, I won't bog us down too much in my forecast, but my other ones were, um, the mortgage rates will fall to 5%, which was clearly wrong. Um, you know, I, I just, I guess I got the first part of it right. And mortgage rates, I think are around six, six now. So they did come down, um, but they're not nearly, not nearly to where I thought. And, you know, one of the interesting things, and this is not something for us to talk about now, but the interesting things on mortgage rates is, you know, not just the fact that the 10 year is up, but like that spread between the 10 year and mortgage rates is like historically, historically high right now. And so that, that's one of the things that's kept mortgage rates really high. And so obviously my advanced econometric models um, did not pick up on that. Um, and so I think that's why I got my inflation wrong uh, or my mortgage rate wrong. Like if, if the spread was more standard, I would have been pretty close to right. But because of that, I'm, I'm not wrong. Um, and then the other one is uh, I just predicted technology stocks would outperform the market, which I think is a win for me. Um, I think XLK was up about 54% this year. So uh, I think that's a win. So I'll give myself, I, I guess, I don't know, you guys can judge, but I'll give myself, I guess, three out of four. Yeah, that's solid. Not bad. Not bad. So yeah, one of the, one of these years, I'm just going to completely destroy this and be wrong on everything. So maybe this will be the year that finally happens. I, I often think back, uh, I took a test. They made me take Latin for some reason in like seventh or eighth grade, or maybe I was dodging in another class or something. I transferred schools and I somehow ended up in a Latin class. And I remember having a test in a foreign language where I literally was like, I have not studied. I know none of these words. <laughs> and I remember thinking this only goes bad. And when she handed the test back, I had a perfect score. I think about that lesson a lot. Do you know how you did that? No, no, it was dumb luck. It was pure dumb luck. It was a multiple choice test that I just somehow got every single one right on without knowing anything that was going on in front of me. And that's uh, a lot of my economic skills come from that lesson. J j just one comment on the tech stocks, because I, I think it's interesting to think about how they, especially the big large cap tech stocks, how they behave this year. And you know, if you think about it, and this is Gene Munster and Doug Clinton actually kind of pointed this out on the podcast that we, when we had them on, um, you know, these tech stocks, like in the middle of the year became like consumer staple stocks in the sense that they were like a flight to safety. Because after you had the Silicon Valley Bank and the First Republic thing and all the cracks that were started to show in the late spring, early summer, um, you know, that's when you started to get this gap between the Magnificent Seven and those large cap tech stocks when the rest of the market, you know, was kind of signaling, oh, there could be, you know, more problems, you know, under the surface than, 
um, than it's priced in. So I just think it's interesting that these technology names, the Apples and the Microsofts of the world, I mean, they're great businesses. They generate tons of profits. And, you know, kind of the way it's shaking out is they're starting to be looked at as, you know, the possible safety trade in rough economic environments because those businesses are, you know, they should be relatively protected. I mean, in, in a recession, everything's probably going to get hit. Certain things are going to get hit, hit more than others. But, you know, at least this year during those periods when there was stress, those technology names were kind of the safety trade. Your, your phone is your most valuable possession in most things. Like the ability to Google things is the most valuable source of information you have. Uh, YouTube, this podcast clearly driving all the value for YouTube, by the way. Um, but I think, it, and I, I don't have the number in front of me, but I want to say like, and this goes back to the point you made that I think is also really important, Jack, about you had a down year in 2022. And I'm pretty sure weren't tech stocks down like almost 30% in 2022. Yeah. Yeah. They were down more than the market in 2022. So like one of the other things, and it, it's one of those, it's, it shouldn't be, this part shouldn't be easy, but maybe this is one of like the easier things that I've learned in my years in this. You look at stuff like that. And when good quality stuff gets like blown up, then you don't ignore that because it's usually don't see good quality stuff get blown up multiple years in a row like that. Mm -hmm. And coming back to your inside outside view, Jack, like when we talk about stuff like tech stocks coming into the year, like that was a big reason to say like, yeah, they got beat up pretty friggin' bad last year. Maybe, hey, maybe some of that momentum, maybe there was some overreaction to all that bad news that hit. Yeah, you know, for, for me, the reason I made the prediction I did is like, these were clearly, and you know, when you talk about technology, clearly the big companies drive the return. These were really good businesses, like really good quality businesses that were pretty cheap. I remember yeah, the you know, call we had where you were like, blockchain, Matt, blockchain. Right. <laughs> and also the other thing for me was like, they clearly had a lot of like bloat inside the businesses. They clear, and they were just showing it like at the beginning of the year, like they had the mm. ability to cut a lot of people. So they had the ability to increase profitability by basically doing almost nothing. They had like, you, you saw those crazy videos like on TikTok of like Facebook people, like whatever their day looked like and it didn't involve much work. Like, you know, it, it was, it was clear that these were good businesses that were cheap and that they could you know, they had the ability to cut to try to focus on profitability. And you've seen that in a lot of the tech companies now. You've seen the the focus shift sort of from growth to cash flows and profitability. And unlike the unprofitable tech stocks, those those big ones that drive the market had the ability to make that shift fairly easily. It really feels like 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 the big tech companies are the old testament god of the markets in the last year. Like they can save you and they can smite you completely. And that seems to be their approach to labor markets. Do we want to give a, take a shot at our own 2024 year-end market forecast? Are we doing that? We yeah, yeah. Let, we can't, we can't let Jack stand alone. <laughs> we can't hold ourselves accountable if we don't do it. So you got to take a run at it. Um, we've got all these other, uh, you know, we, we can throw this chart up here. We've got all these other guys again. It's, it's a different collection of people just because we pulled the charts from different places. But again, we've got some of the major forecasters here and what they're calling for. So we can see uh, what we're calling for and how it compares to them. So let's see the average, the average, cause I have this in Excel is 5,200. That's the average forecast across the whatever 13 price targets that we have for the S and P. So yeah, the, all right. thing, this is a tough year to predict and as, as is every year, a tough year to predict, but you know, I tend to think like whenever I get, whenever I get too pessimistic and that that's kind of where I am personally, like I, I think. You know, I'm worried about inflation coming back. We just had a huge run. 
valuations, if you look at any kind of long-term thing, are really high. But I also know a couple different other things. One is this is an election year. Um, and as much as people talk about the fact that the Fed is not influenced by what's going on in an election year, they probably are. They've, they've indicated they're going to cut. Um, so like when, when I look at that stuff and, you know, also whenever we have a run like this, I always tend to think it's over way before it actually is over. Um, like that, that's always like, I'm, I'm obviously a value investor. So that, that's like my nature is I always think it's over, you know, before it is. And then the other thing is I, I'm somewhat optimistic about what AI is going to mean. I don't know what it's going to mean, but I know whatever it's going to mean, like the market will always take that future and pull it back into the present. Like think about the discounted value of that future. And so I just, I think there might be some sort of outlier positive on AI this year that maybe we, uh, that, that'll impact the market in a positive way. So, so as a whole, so basically that ends up with me predicting like about a 15% return this year. I think that's a noble prediction and, and say what your number is. So were you coming off a of 4,600 or 4,700 from today? What was your number? Yeah, 4,715. So I think I came up, I think I came up with 5,440. Um, the, the market's obviously, we're not, unfortunately we're not at the point where we know the closing price of the year. So, uh, we're kind of having Speak to guess yourself, here, sir. <laughs> right? Yeah, maybe Matt already knows what it's going to be, but we're kind of having to predict off of that. But uh, I'll, I'll stick to the fifty-four forty wherever it closes. Well, I think that that's an excellent that's an excellent jump off point, and yeah, I mean the whole innate, uh, enabling current stuff for encouraging competition in AI. This all I have a much more technical way, um, not AI driven, and my target is fifty-one fifty, which is about ten-ish percent up from where you are, right in line with long-term averages. I'd love to say that was the source, but uh, I've derived my price target this year by the close proximity to uh, the Van Halen album title from oh. the same name. Less the album, more the 5150 guitar amp, which I always kind of worshipped, and then uh, the home studio of Eddie Van Halen, which was 5150. Now here's, there's a couple of important points that'll play into the rest of my forecasts, which are mostly all rooted in the history of Van Halen. But um, do you guys know what where 5150 comes from? This is great music trivia for you. No, Wait, I don't know. Wait, where, where it comes from? Uh, I've been listening yeah. to oh. that album too. Oh. Really? Wow. Yes. Because yeah, they were on, because Sammy Hagar and that guitarist guy, that they're, they're touring next year. They're on Howard Stern. And so I've been, no it kind of reignited my just overall interest in Van Halen, who I, I wasn't really that wasn't on the top of my like playlist or anything, but I, lately I've been so no, I forget though. I thought they talked about that, but anyways, go ahead. Where does it come from? So the the clue is like think like one eight seven and four twenty and these things. Which if I say those words, do those at least get your brain on a track? Like dates, right? Ah, no, no, no. Okay, so okay. these are these are like uh, police codes for different things. Okay. Oh, I gotcha. So you know one eight seven on an undercover yeah, cop. Yeah. Uh, 420. Yeah. Anyway, so 5150 is the police code for a mentally unstable person in California. Hmm. And uh, not, I mean, in one part, I might be saying that that's the reason for my forecast. And, a, and a, the, the other part of it, though, that I think is 5150 is also the album that comes after, uh, like, that's when Sammy Hayer comes into the group. And you have this giant change. And I think kind of like, Jack, what you said with AI, I think the big change here in this year is David Lee Roth to Sammy Hagar level. And that's like the Fed actually changing from a nominal policy-driven response to a real real rate policy-driven response. Warren Pies has been talking about this. Jim Bianco has been talking about this. I think this is really interesting. That inflation rate, where that goes, how it affects unemployment, what the Fed's going to do and what they're responding to. I think that playbook just changed. And that's a lot like swapping lead singers and therefore 
I am arriving at my 5150 price target. Love it. Love it, Matt. Justin, well, you're, uh, you, you appear to be the most optimistic of all this of us This is going to be a disaster. Um, you are like, uh, yeah, you're not, not only way above us, but you're also way above any other for, for, uh, I'm really above any other. for next year. So. I'm very excited for this because <laughs> until I realized I was 10% away from 5150 and decided <laughs> that would be my landing zone, I was in your camp because I was like, go big or go home, right? Well, listen, I, my methodology was kind of pretty simple. I took uh, Eddie Ardini's estimate for S&P uh, 2024 earnings of 250. And I basically then took, you know, the average of the forward multiple of the S&P 500 over the last eight quarters. And that gets you a multiple of like 23 set or yeah, about 20, almost 24. And I just multiplied those two things and it gets you, gets to a number of like basically a little over 5,900 in the S&P, which is a 25% return. And I don't know. I mean, I think in a environment where the Fed is easing, you know, could you have a above average multiple and could investors be assigning, you know, higher multiples to stocks? I think it's certainly possible. Um, the 250 on earnings seems a little bit aggressive, but I mean, he's been, like we were talking about before, you know, he's been one of the more accurate guys at forecasting sort of where the market's going to be and where earnings are going to come in at. So I'm kind of relying on his number, which his is above. You know, most of the street is at uh, a number lower than his um, with their EPS. I think the average is uh, actually no. The average is uh, no. The average is two hundred and fifty. No, no. But the average is here. Hold on. Uh, the average is two hundred and thirty-four on the S and P. So he's fifteen dollars, fifteen dollars ahead. But I think to your AI point, Jack, you know, you I could certainly see margins. I mean, that's been one of the arguments that a lot of people have been making is that margins are historically high and obviously with higher interest rates and higher financing costs and, you know, maybe slower growth, obviously that cuts into those margins. But if you, you know, some of these companies start utilizing AI and can figure out ways to cut costs and all the jobs that are going to be affected, I mean, you could certainly see a step up in margins that could, I mean, maybe it doesn't happen next year. Maybe that's not the driver to 250 in earnings, but you know, over time you could see that. And if the market starts to sniff that out, it's going to, you know, it'll discount that way in advance. It's not going to, it's not going to have to wait. So I don't know. That's, that's pretty optimistic. I know. I don't know what the likelihood is to like 25% years back to back. The only thing, the only thing I was struggling with is if we know the major drivers of the index are those the ten, well, I think like the whatever the magnificent seven or the top technology stocks account for like thirty percent of the index. When I think about just the massive size of those companies now, those companies are going to have to do a lot of the lifting. It's not going to be the other you know four hundred and eighty stocks in the index. They may they may do better, but you know a lot of the returns are going to be driven from you know a handful of companies. So. When I start to kind of think about it that way, I do sense like how big can Apple actually get here? How big can Microsoft get? So I can kind of poke some holes in my my thesis, but I don't know. That's how I got there. I don't know. In the same way, Van Halen, 1984 was like, what, Jump? Hot for Teacher? All those songs? I mean, that feels like pandemic economy. And then you go really big. You can turn around with, um, you were just listening to the album. What is it? Is it Why Can't This Be Love? Was that the big 5150 song? Well, you have, um, I have su summer nights. You have fifty one fifty. Um, why can't this be love? Yeah, dreams oh, is in dreams. 
Love Dreams. walks in. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So, I mean, those were all giant, absolutely ginormous hits. And I, I kind of wonder if it's just like the retooling of some of these big companies. Maybe that's the thing to take them up a whole other level. Cause we got a bunch of those tech stocks that still aren't even at highs. And we all know that's where a giant portion of the earnings and the profits actually come from that tip the whole index. Uh, back to that point, Jack, I think you made earlier. I think what we can say for sure now is that the market's definitely going to be down next year. Um, <laughs> yeah. After after what the three of us have come up with. Um, In the toilet. <laughs> right. This could be one of the worst years of all time, basically, uh, following wow. that. But uh, I will add a little bonus prediction for this is I do think I do think the Russell's going to outperform a lot next year. I do think the Russell might be up like 30% or something next year. Um, I saw Tom Lee is predicting like 50% for the Russell next year, which is which is quite aggressive. But I, I do kind of think we're seeing a turn here. Um, and again, I'm obviously wrong about this, just like I'm wrong about everything else I've said. But, um, you know, a lot of us who invest in smaller stocks and particularly smaller value stocks have been waiting for like more of a blowout year. And I, I think there's a good chance like we might see it next year um, with understanding that obviously that doesn't make any sense and that I have no logical reason to believe that. I have every do logical reason to believe it. <laughs> I do. just want to say I've been dollar cost <laughs> averaging painfully in the small cap stocks over the course of the year. And uh, yeah, you might not be buying a Lamborghini for me yet, but let's go small cap. Well, the other thing that we've talked about a lot on other podcasts is the concept of momentum. And, you know, when you have a, you know, small caps have woken up big time in the last two months. So that momentum could certainly continue into next year. Um, and just the overall momentum for the market. Um, you know, you can get these things. I mean, remember, you know, what was it, 1995 or 96? The Fed was, I think the Fed was easing if I have my, some of my history correct there. But the point is, is that, you know, the market rallied in 97 and 98 and 99. Obviously, those valuations were crazy. It all kind of came, it all unwound during the 2000 to 2002 bear market. But the, the market can run for longer than a lot of people can uh, anticipate it can. Yeah, Matt, and to your, to your point on your Lamborghini, I don't know if you remember like that guy that was on CNBC and he kind of like, he had, he had like an embarrassing performance on CNBC. He's got tons of Twitter followers. And like he, uh, it was something about he didn't know the name of a, he's like a technical analyst and he didn't know the name of the company or something. He didn't know, he didn't know what the company did. Yeah, it, was, it was something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, his response to like all the, and he got brutalized on Twitter. His response was his, his wife like filmed him slow rolling in his Ferrari. Um, and that was basically, he, he like posted that video and that was his response. So, you know, depending on how your forecast goes, Matt, if you get your Lamborghini, we'll, we'll be there with our camcorder or whatever. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get a little video of you slow rolling in your Lamborghini. I'll slow roll in the Lamborghini. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that's actually, I think Sammy Hagar got the Van Halen job because of his, uh, Lamborghini mechanic. So this all could be coming up Van Halen for me this year. Do we want, I have a few other sort of one-offs things to predict or i guess to put out there but um is there anything else in terms of yeah the economy? I mean, we, should, we should probably just talk about the economy briefly i'm um, just to kind of get what we what we think about what's what's happening i mean you know i'll start i mean for, for me i, I kind of feel like we're sort of going to be where we are on inflation um like i, I don't feel like it's gonna I, I think there is a risk of it accelerating in the future um for a lot of reasons like there's a bunch of like you know higher level reasons that will play out over multiple years where I think we have the risk of it accelerating, but in the near term, um, you know, it seems to be coming down. Like to me, if I had to guess this year, you know, I would put something in the 3% range. Um, I think it's going to be hard to get down to 2%, but I also think, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably going to settle in there. And like I said, I mean, I think the Fed maybe, you know, is probably going to be a little more aggressive on easing due to an election year than they normally would be. Um, and, and like you, you said, Matt, like the whole idea of targeting real rates um, changes things a little bit too. So I think that is the chance to maybe accelerate inflation in the future, but 
as we know, like the, the economy is a glacier. Um, it's or a barge or whatever you want to call it. Like it, it takes a long, long time for, for things to change. So I feel like we're kind of are where we are for now. And with inflation, I think, and this goes back to understand the logic of what's going into these numbers. Don't just get hung up on like the, the number or the sound bite. And so I'm with you. I think like 3% ish sounds perfectly reasonable. And I think the big, the big trick is going to be, we've got certain goods and certain things that are getting cheaper again, or at least the rate of change is not what it was. Like hopefully our grocery bills don't keep going up by the rate they were going up. But at the same time, wages are really sticky. And between the trend in deglobalization and the trends in demographics, which is mostly getting boomers to retire, and we're about halfway through that, and we know that we're not replacing them with enough millennials or like Zoomers in the workforce yet. So it's probably going to be upward pressure on wages for the foreseeable future. So if goods go back down, if wages hang in there tight, like inflation's going to keep changing for the positive. And we we're probably not going back to 0% inflation. So hovering around like three and just being stubbornly present probably sounds like a pretty good, pretty good target. Yeah. And to your point, we're also seeing some stuff on the Fed in terms of like the relaxing the 2% target a little bit, not necessarily changing it, but talking about like targeting bans and things like that. So we're probably not going to see the Fed being like, I'll drive the economy into the ground if I have to, to get to 2%. You're probably going to see some adjustments around the edges that you know, allows them to live with the fact that, you know, it might sit like at higher levels for a little bit. We're officially in the language around how they're explaining the target has changed. And it's not exactly a 180, but it's like, just like with transitory, we've entered a new phase of how we're going to explain this thing. And that's, that's really important here. Um, anything about housing or any other parts of the economy that you guys want to no, I don't think we have to cover that too much. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm reiterating my 5% mortgage rate target uh, because it was wrong. I have to, I think the, the appropriate forecaster move is just to double down when you're wrong. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and double down on 5% again this year. And, and I'm hoping that those spreads will go down and that I'll be right at the end of the year. I'm going to say 6% on mortgages. I'm going to top tick you and it'll mm-hmm. probably be like seven because sometime in about 12 months, I'll probably be house shopping. So whatever the maximum right. point of pain and so frustration So it's, it's headed is. to 14, basically. Oh, yeah. I'm going back <laughs> right. to the... We're going back to the 80s levels real fast. That'll be the most correct part of my Van Halen thing. I'm going to get Van Halen era interest rates. So I think think with housing, it's like housing starts are crazy again. The whole wages thing, and this kind of goes back with banking and all the other stuff too. If we have wages and we have um, millennials down trying to buy houses, like, like from boomers with like bigger prices in many cases, there's just a huge, there's just a big demand problem here. And it doesn't mean houses in certain areas can't like take a step back or stop their rate of ascent at the same level, but we have a constrained housing market. We don't have a lot of new supply and we have wages there so that people can actually go out and get the mortgages. Where that level is going to set in is going to vary. But if people are getting wages and are employed, like how does housing not put up another strong number and how are mortgage rates going to be they're not going to get detached from this economy. I guess that's my point. That was like one of my biggest lessons from this year is like housing was probably the most surprising thing to me because if you had said to me, you know, 8% mortgage rates, I would have been like, oh, this is going to be really, really ugly for housing. But like to your point, when you just break it down to supply and demand, like what is supply? Supply is existing homes or new builds. New builds takes a very hard, long time to ramp up. They don't just like houses just don't start popping up. And I, and I didn't totally get the idea that basically when you've got a 3% mortgage and mortgage rates go that high, you're not going to sell your house. And so 
supply is like constrained in both ways. And then to your point, like as much as demand may not be crazy strong, like millennials, which is a huge generation, are buying houses right now. And they've, they're going to buy the houses probably regardless, irrespective of the rates to some degree. So like I miss that whole idea of like go back to first principles, go back to supply and demand and think about like what might happen. And that's how you end up with much higher mortgage rates, but a really strong housing market. I moved just over a year ago, uh, dealing with this with a bunch of clients on the financial planning side, like through the pandemic, people moving to different states and stuff like that. And that was one of the real eye openers, I think, for me coming into this year was like, don't expect housing to fall off a cliff again without, without some type of major like banking crisis or other event. If people are employed, and especially if they're having raises, then like people are talking to us all the time on the financial planning front of like, how do I afford uh, this much house? And th that doesn't slow the rate of purchases. That doesn't magically create new houses to live in. And it, and it cuts in all directions. Hugely eye-opening. It's one of those things that feels easy to gloss over when it shouldn't be. So on a company-specific level, I think that something major happens at Berkshire Hathaway next year. Um, I think that the death of Charlie- Did you just Charlie, kill Warren? Are you well, killing Warren that's next not, year? Is that what you're hopefully doing? That's, hopefully that's not the case. But I think that, you know, they have over $150 billion in cash. I think, you know, either they make a major acquisition or, uh, you know, maybe even buy back a shitload of stock or something like that. Or maybe Buffett realizes, you know, it's time to hand over the reins. Um, I just think that, you know, I don't know if he'll ever do that, but or if he'll have to go out sort of like Charlie did. I just think that the, sort of maybe the death of Charlie has him thinking uh, maybe a little bit differently about his future with the company or what he wants to do to make one last, you know, major acquisition. Um, anyway, so that's... That's one of my predictions. We'll see if that happens. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I don't, I'm not, you, you obviously, you know, you're the, they're the Berkshire expert over here at Validia. Um, like I'm not the, uh, I am not the Berkshire expert. You know, you know a lot more than I do. So uh, I like it so, though, because so. you, you kind of, you did a good thing that, you know, people who predict do, which is you, you made it broad enough that like a bunch of different things can make you right. And so that's kind of what I did with my S&P 15% plus thing. So I think that's good. That's being a good forecaster is saying like, not this exact thing is going to happen, but I've got, I've got a wide range of things that could happen where I'm going to be right. So I, I like what you did there. And it's also important because every forecast, good forecasts are also less about getting something right and also about provoking a conversation. So yeah, it's nice to get the numbers right and say, mm -hmm. hey, look at me, I'm smart. But it's also about provoking a conversation. And I think what's so important about Justin about that point is we lost Charlie Munger. There's a human impact on how that affects Warren publicly and privately, I am sure. That's for him and his family and whatever else to help him with. But on the on the front end, it's like, yeah, is there is there one last big hurrah or one last big effort in what's likely the sunset of a great investor's career? Is there anything else that changes in the wake of I'm still just blown away by these two people who have been at the top of the game my entire career in this business. I've been looking at those two and now there's, now there's one standing. And I think in my head, I always thought it was going to be like the end of the notebook. They'd be like curled up in a bed together and just shade <laughs> off and right. sobbing into our cherry Cokes, but damn. Yeah. Any uh, wagers on just in terms of wrapping this up where we think the excess returns channel will end up on a subscriber count basis. We're just almost crossing over the 10,000 mark. We're getting there. So, uh, 
Yeah, hopefully if things go well, we'll get it by the end of the year. Um, so we'll assume we start next year right around 10,000. Um, Matt, where are we headed? 51,500. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'll take that. That's a huge <laughs> Hey, it's a, you know, it's, it's better than the alternative of I can't drive 55 or we lose all of our subscribers because I make too many horrible references to relevant things. <laughs> well, I, I got all excited. Well, what's that site I use, Jack, that has the charting the growth? It's uh Oh yeah. I forget what it is, but yeah, there, there's a, there's a site that chat that sh tracks your YouTube. It's, um. Okay, so specific for like YouTube followers or subscribers or something. Yeah, if, yeah. if you have a social. channel, basically, it'll take, yeah, Social Blade, that's right. Social Blade, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it like takes your subscriber, it takes what's going on in your channel and it projects it out way into the future. But the issue is it basically takes like very, very near-term stuff. So like if we have a really good, strong subscriber month, it'll like assume that percentage growth for like ever. And so you end up with like us having like a million subscribers or something. Well, so it it's has a good us place. For the, end of 20, for, the, for the end of 2024, it has us at 30K, 30,000 mm -hmm. subs. So I, that was going to be my prediction. But then when I was talking to Jack, I didn't give him the number, but Jack's like, we'll be lucky if we even double <laughs> our subscribers next year. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm going to go, I'm going to go a double. I'm going 20K, but maybe we can sort of squeeze out some extra some extra there and get it to 25 or something if we're watching. We gotta have 10,000 new friends hanging out there somewhere. Yeah. They've gotta be there. I mean, everybody who's watching this is hitting that share button 10 times each. And if 10,000 people share it 10 times each, I'm no math expert, but I think I that's feeling, our target. I have a feeling in the last minute of our podcast, Matt, there may not be 10,000 people. <laughs> there may not have been 10,000 people on minute zero. So I, I seriously, I think a lot of them have probably gone by now, but uh, so this one's tough for me because I think like I want to be, I'm like the biggest optimist about what this will eventually be, but I'm also like the data-driven analytical guy. So uh, I would, I mean, if we were like making an act, a guess to trying to be the most accurate we could be, I'd probably be the low. I'd probably be like 17 or something like that. Um, so I'd probably be below both of you guys, but I'm, I'm hoping Matt's the one that's right. <laughs> Fantastic. 51,500, baby. All right, guys. <laughs> Thank you guys very much for watching. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant. You can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbono and follow Matt on Twitter at, at Cultish Creative. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. Also, if you have any ideas for topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please email us at excessreturnspod at gmail.com. We would like this to be a listener-driven podcast and would appreciate any suggestions. Thank you.